Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Don't rush. Don't rush. Let the Baptist beat us to the buffet. The, the best place to be is in the presence of the Lord. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of my heavenly Father. And when we enter into his presence, it satisfies a whole different category. It satisfies a whole different place than filling our stomach with something that we can digest. If we can eat and digest God's presence and his word and his life within us, we can suddenly be energized in ways that food can't do. You know, sugar may pep you up, but Jesus sets you free. Amen. 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 God is in the house. Amen. 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 You may be seated. I just want to say, Pastor, if you're watching, we're so glad you're getting a break. And uh, we certainly hope that you smell like salt air and you got sand somewhere. Uh, you know, we want, to, we want to find out that you brought back a pound of sand in your car mats or something, you know, and a couple seashells maybe. So it'd be great. It'd be great. We love our pastor. Amen. Amen. I want to tell you a story today. It's not that it's unfamiliar. It's not that I'll say anything revolutionary today or something that you haven't heard. What it's about is taking a moment to be reminded. You know, grace is free, but it's not cheap. You know, grace comes to us at no cost because he already paid for it. Amen. You know, it's a wonderful thing to go through McDonald's and find out your sausage and egg McMuffin's been paid for by the car in front of you. It tastes better. I don't know why. It just does. I didn't have to pay for it. That one was better. It just was fresher somehow. I don't know what that was. But when we come into this life and live the struggle that is life, we have days that are joyful and wonderful. You know, when our children marry or when we get a, a moment at a graduation or, or we uh, land the job or get the bonus or, uh, or purchase that home or or get that car we always thought we wanted. Those are moments that are joyful, but they pass. And then we have our moments of struggle and we struggle with health and we struggle with addiction and we struggle with our own flesh and we struggle with our own fears and, and we struggle with our internal opinions of other people's actions. You know, so many times people didn't mean the things that we think they meant. So many times their actions were not aimed at you but somehow we received it as though it was personal. Somehow we received it as though they're, you know, oh, I can't believe they said that. I can't believe they said that. And if you asked them, they'd say, I don't recall saying that. <laughs> but in our head, we heard it. And sometimes our own habits, our own addictions, our own struggles, our own flesh, our own life takes us to a place where we end up feeling guilty and ashamed and wounded and hurt and filled with sorrow. And sometimes even the best days of our life can't be savored because we're under such a cloud and we're walking through such a struggle and people don't seem to understand. And the truth is, nobody understands what you've been through and they never will. But God understands everything you've been through and he always will. And the thing about God is, he knows why you did what you did. He knows why it happened that something was done to you. He understands the heart of men, good and evil. He understands better than we do. 
And it's, you know, we get offended. Have you ever been offended? Isn't it amazing? It, it can feel like the end of the world when somebody cut ahead of you in line, uh, you know, at Silver Dollar City. You're going to get on that ride one and a half steps behind them, but it's like, I can't believe you did that. My world is crumbling right in front of me. I was hoping to get on there before you. I've been waiting in this line for three and a half hours. I want to get on the ride. People get offended by amazingly small things. It's not going to be the big thing that destroys people. It's going to be the little thing. Little thing, a random word. Let me, let me tell you a story that kind of brings this to light. Now, I know the holiest among us probably haven't heard secular music, but, but I have, you know. And uh, so what does that tell you? I'm not the holiest among us. But anyway, uh, Karen Carpenter. Anybody heard of the Carpenters? Okay, we can tell everybody that's over 45 in this room. But anyway, uh, yeah, but your parents probably played it. That's why you know. But anyway, uh, you know, and thank God for parents that carry the culture forward, you know. But uh, Karen Carpenter overheard a comment made to her brother. They sang together, her and her brother. She overheard a comment made to her brother that wasn't even aimed at her or intended for her. And he said, gee, it seems Karen's put on some weight. If you've seen Karen Carpenter, she looked like a, a pipe cleaner. You know, we used to twist things together and make a little pipe cleaner man. That was Karen Carpenter with a dress, you know. And uh, she developed such an anxiety over her weight that she died as a result of an offhanded comment. She died of either bulimia or anorexia, and it was a result. She was fighting her struggle to get away from it, but she never got away from the comment, and she died as a result of an offense that wasn't even supposed to be heard by her. Now, we may have offended somebody and we don't even know it. I, I know I offend people because sometimes I kid around and people aren't the kiddable type. It happens, you know. Some people are not kiddable. You can tell because they, I think if they smile, their ears might fall off. It might actually happen, you know, it might. Because they just, you know, their body is set in a certain angle. So you tilt it and it just like, could you pick that up? I need to put it back. Where's Jesus when you need him? You know, but the point is... Uh, <clears throat> that sometimes we keep our hearts so far out on our sleeve that a light breeze can knock it to the ground. And God wants you to have a whole different place in your life. You know why Jesus offended people? And I've talked about this, but the, Jesus offended people to get at their heart. He wasn't trying to hurt them. He was trying to bring them out, out of the box and get to their heart. When we talk about this story today, what I want you to get from this story is I want to try to, through uh, sensory uh, as much as talking, I want you to get to uh, uh, just about feeling like you're on a dusty road out in the Middle East. It's, you know, over 100 degrees and uh, it's a semi-arid place. There is some, uh, you know, there's some groves and there's some crops and there's some, uh, you know, farms and ranches, but, but it's, it's arid and it's dry and it's hot. And it's a, it's a place that, uh, you know, is very Middle Eastern, very open. And uh, 
you know, the architecture looks the same, house after house after house, and the, the colors are kind of earthy. And, you know, I just want you to follow me in this story. Now, Jesus was at the house of some friends, and while he was at the house of these friends, uh, Mary, it was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who uh, Jesus had recently raised Lazarus from the dead. That's a hard act to follow, you know. I mean, uh, you know, somebody raised somebody from the dead. It's like, well, give me a few weeks before I speak at that church because uh, I, I don't know how to improve on that. That's pretty good. Yeah, you know. But uh, Jesus had called and Lazarus came out. It, it's such an amazing story. And he's at the house of this family, uh, and he loved it. They were friends of his, and he loved these people. It was a place of... Uh, sanctuary for him, you know, and he got to speak openly and he had people that would gather around him. And, uh, you know, uh, pastor talked about Martha, you know, uh, <clears throat> making tacos for him. He didn't ask for, you know, so she, she, she wanted to please him. That's what it was. You know, she was trying hard to please him with her best skill, which was, she's probably the cook in the family, you know, and Mary came in with a Alabaster box. Now, alabaster is a semi-transparent uh, box that would be uh, filled with pure nard, which pure nard in the ancient world was prized and often used for anointing kings and installing priests and among the wealthy. And pure nard, uh, you know, the Bible sometimes doesn't translate well to us, but it was uh, the, the primary scent in pure nard would be lavender. So what they did is they crushed it. And what they mean by pure nard is it was in liquid form. And so it wasn't potpourri, it was perfume. And it was, uh, it was over $50,000 worth of pure nard in this box. 50000 Just imagine holding in your hand $50,000 of perfume. 50, that should have lasted a long time. You know, just a dab will do you a little bit right there, you know, just a dab. Maybe you'll get through a lifetime with this, but this, this was a year's wages. It was $50,000. And Mary goes to his feet while he's reclining and he's talking and maybe having a chicken wing or something, you know. I, I don't know. It was around Easter. Maybe he was having Reese's eggs because those are really good. But um, she broke it. And, and, it, and immediately... When you're breaking open an alabaster box with $50,000 of perfume in it, immediately the room smelled like lavender and other spices, I'm sure. But that would be the, the lead scent in that would be the, the lavender. And it breaks and the room just rushes with this smell. And this is a regal smell. This is a wealthy smell. This is a righteous smell. This is, this is you know... I'm old, so I can't even name colognes anymore, but, you know, this is, this is Aramis right here, you know. I didn't say Old Spice, so you just keep that in mind. But uh, anyway, this just filled the room, and, and all of a sudden their nostrils were filled, and Judas said, you know, a year's wages feeds a lot of poor people. It's interesting that he thinks money would be required because Jesus took a boy's lunch and fed 5,000. So what, what, what do we need money for? Jesus didn't have a wallet. We know that because when they asked, uh, we need to pay the taxes, he said, oh, just go fishing. There will be a coin in the mouth. And they pulled the coin, paid the taxes, and moved on. He said, it all belongs to me. Why am I paying taxes on it? I don't understand. But anyway, uh, we'll just satisfy the tax collector and move on. But uh, the, the point was, 
So many times God does something and we look the wrong direction. It doesn't matter what it's worth. It doesn't matter. That wasn't the point. So this pure nard was poured over his feet and she wiped it with her hair. Well, hair don't make a good towel. What in the world hair? You, we got some ladies with long hair. You, you ever, you know, see your kids spill something, you lay down and, you know, got that up. That's better than a brawny. I'm telling you, you know, it, it's not like that. Two things were happening here, and this is really important. She was giving her wealth to him. And what was the woman's hair called in the Bible? She was giving her glory to him. And she wasn't wasting it. That's $50,000 laying on his feet. She wasn't wasting it. She was rubbing it in with her hair and collecting it as well. And here's the thing. For the rest of Passion Week, everybody could smell the king was in the room. They didn't see him as a king, but she knew this is a king right here, and he'd have been anointed. Now, it says it was anointed for his burial, but it was anointed for his kingship so that everywhere he went for the remainder of Passion Week, everybody would know there's a king among us. There's a king among us. There's a king. And they could smell it everywhere. You poor, just look. You know, I would buy, uh, I don't even remember what I paid for Aramis. I think it's a dollar and a half for Old Spice, so Aramis is probably about 30 bucks. But uh, <laughs> Old Spice had a lock on men's cologne, and you know what killed it? One of their competitors sent a little boy running up into his daddy's lap and said, Daddy, you smell like Grandpa. Old Spice died right there. <laughs> killed it. <laughs> Nobody wanted to wear Old Spice. I don't want to smell like grandpa with my pants up here, you know, and the whole thing. It's just not going to happen. They survived because us grandpas are still out there, but that's not the point. The point is, this smell clung to him. So then he started his week. And we know the story of Palm Sunday. Here was a calendar date that you need to understand. They knew what day their Messiah would appear. They didn't have an idea like we do. Well, the rapture is coming any time. Nobody knows the day, the time, or the hour. But when their Messiah was going to arrive on that colt, coming down that particular hill in that particular way, it had been predicted. It was already known. It was already in the Bible. They already had an account of it. They'd already memorized the 39 books of the Old Testament. They knew what day to look up what hill. And when they see a colt up there, there is their Messiah right there. So when they went out there and they started reciting a psalm of David, Hosanna, hail the king, save us, save us, save us. When they looked up the hill, those Pharisees and Sadducees were there. They were all looking forward to this day. They're gathered. They look up the hill and they go, no, no, not him. And here he came down the hill and they're laying down palms. In the Old Testament, they used to have a celebration, a celebration of booths, and they built a booth with uh, willows and palms. Willows represented sorrow and palms represented joy. But you notice they didn't wave willows, did they? They only waved palms. Because Jesus takes away our sorrow. Jesus takes away our sorrow. And so they're waving palms, they're laying their coats down. This colt's coming down. He's riding down in this triumphant moment. And his disciples are thinking, it's all over. It's, we've, boy, we're done. This is it. 
We're going to take this place over. We're going to kick the Romans out. We're going to be a superpower like we were under David and Solomon. We're, we're going back to our glory. And at some point, Jesus looked at a city that's only a few years from being destroyed, where not one piece of it remains intact. The Romans were so angry with the Jews because they were so hard-headed. When they tore that city down, they plowed the ground where it was. They destroyed Jerusalem. And he looked at this city that he was here for all of them. And they didn't even see their Messiah, even though he said, I'll be here on this day. I'll be here on this cult. I'll be here in this way. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. And they were oblivious to Jesus. And he wept. He wept, how I long to gather you under my wings and protect you. How much I love you. You don't understand how much I love you. And the city just went around about its business, except for those people at that moment celebrating his arrival. The Pharisees said, tell your people to stop. He said, if I told these folks to stop, that rock under your foot would cry out. This creation would cry out because this creation knows her creator. And her creator is standing on her right now. It would have been an amazing moment to hear the rocks go, Hallelujah! God. The week had a lot of events, and we're not going to go into all the nuts and bolts of all of it, but he went into the temple, and what, what Ananias' market was all about, because Ananias had been replaced by Caiaphas, because Caiaphas would work with the, the Romans. Ananias was an old line, hard-headed priest that would not cooperate. So they pulled him out and appointed Caiaphas. But Ananias' bizarre was, as you entered into the temple, oh, no, you can't bring that little dove for an offering. I'm sorry, that's not acceptable. You'll have to have a temple offering. We'll take that from you, but we're going to need a little bit of money so you can have this one. We'll let you trade in your inferior dove, and we'll give you a better dove. Oh, no, 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 you can't use that ordinary currency. you got to use temple coin. So we'll take that, and we'll give you an exchange rate, and you can have this. So what they'd done is they'd figured out how to take the offerings the poor were bringing and turn a profit. And Jesus was so angry. This is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a market of merchandising, banking, and, and you've turned it into a place where people are ripped off instead of relieved. God hates, God hates his name being perverted into something it's not. God doesn't want to be used. He wants to be in relationship. You know, there's, there's children that, uh, you know, their, their thoughts are that, uh, you know, parents are an ATM, parents are a roof, parents are food. But parents want a relationship with their children. That's what they want. We give out of love, but we don't want to just be taken advantage of. Don't you hate being manipulated? If you've ever been manipulated, it's a terrible thing. People are still trying to manipulate God. God gives you everything, and then we try to twist him into doing something for us. You know, Jesus said, not my will, yours be done. That's what he's asking for us to do. Because the best life is not my choice, it's his. The best life is not my way, it's his way. 
You know, people have the idea that, that God's going to take things away from you. And religious people do take things away. Religious people teach people rules and restriction and confinement. You know, it just gets to where you walk around. I, uh, yes, I love God. I do. I do. I love God. When real worship is, I love God. And I'm not bound. I'm free. You know, I'm not in a straitjacket of rules. I'm in the arms of love. I'm not held to my account for my sins. I'm set free by the grace of God to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit and to be set free and set free and set free. So he turned over the tables in the temple, scattered their money and their doves and their coins and just tore the place up. And, and here was this, again, this lavender scent following this kingly, priestly presence because he is the king of kings and he is our high priest. And here he is standing among them and they had temple guards. You know, they had security, but they couldn't stop the creator of the heavens and the earth when he decided to purify his house. They couldn't stop him. They wanted to. They tried. They hated him. Why did they hate him? Because if you're following rules, you hate freedom. Because when you live in restriction, you can't stand people that are free. It's just hard to take. They were always picking apart his behavior and his disciples' behavior. Why are your disciples doing this or that? Well, why not? Because rule number 587, point B, subsection C, says no! And Jesus said, so? God wrote 10 rules that he knew we couldn't keep. He knew we would fail. But it would, it would reveal the sin within our heart. They thought, you know, 10's good, but 600 more, that would really help us understand. Wow. But when you're wrapped up in all these rules, you're like a mummy. And what are mummies? They're dead. Jesus even said, you're whitened sepulchers full of dead men's bones. What was he saying? Your rules are not changing your life. Your rules are making you miserable. So what you love is to spread your misery and push it off on other people. Jesus brought a relationship with God. Jesus brought life. He said, I and the Father are one. When you've seen me, you've seen him. That's what it's supposed to be for us. If people think God looks anything like me, how does God feel about that? He went through the week and other things happened. But then toward the end of the week, he gathered his disciples for supper. And he told them a lot of things they didn't want to hear. He told them things that they just, they were ready to set up the government. They were ready to take over. They were ready to rule. And he kept telling them, I'm, I'm ready to die. Matter of fact, when he started heading for Jerusalem, they said his face was set like flint. They knew there was trouble in Jerusalem. They knew that this wouldn't be good, but he, his face was set like flint. I've got to go do what I've got to go do. And it scared them. It scared him. He was so resolved. It scared them. 
He's trying to explain things over dinner and they're just not getting it. He talks about how somebody's going to betray him and he dips a biscuit in the gravy and he says, the one I hand the biscuit to, he's going to go betray me. <clears throat> and the Bible says when Judas took the biscuit, the devil entered him from that hour. And he left. And the other disciples say, you think he's going for Mountain Dew? We are kind of running low. No, he was going to betray Jesus. Jesus talked about things during his time with the disciples, like who do men say that I am? Well, they say you're Elijah. They say you're, you know, you're a great teacher. They say you're you know, somebody special. But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're our Messiah. And God said, uh, you know, Jesus said that this was not something you came up with, Peter. This was, this was something revealed to you. Yes. Jesus talked about how he's going to die. And now Peter thought, I really got to discernment. I'm really together now. So when Jesus starts to talk about how he's going to die, he grabs him and says, stop it. Let me shake that out of you. Yeah. So this one that God just said, Wow, Peter, that was really good. He says, uh, get behind me, Satan. Yeah. That's a come down from a good compliment to uh, <laughs> the devil just used me as a mouthpiece. Uh, I'm going to have to go think about this. <laughs> That's when he did communion and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this wine, be reminded that God did this for you. He washed their feet. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, didn't sit on a throne with a scepter and say, come and do for me what I would like. But he took off his outer robe, he wrapped a towel, he got down on his hands and feet, and he washed the feet of the disciples. And he said, do likewise. God didn't call you to boss people around. He called you to serve. He led them out to the garden. And I imagine the spirit was just so heavy. It was so heavy. The atmosphere was thick. It was, we, were at the, we were at that chronos moment in time where sin was colliding with God's righteousness. And the devil was trying to destroy. And God was trying to create this was that moment when we were going to be rescued. This was that moment when our hero comes in with his cape on and changes everything. And in this garden, in his humanity, Jesus went away from the disciples. He asked them to pray and he went away and he tarried before the Lord and he prayed and he prayed and he, he, he was under such strain that the, the, just the pressure of his skin on his scalp was breaking blood vessels and his, his sweat became his great drops of blood and he's just praying and he goes back to find him sleeping and he, he says, can't you even tarry with me for an hour? Can't you even be with me during this moment? And he goes back and prays and when he comes back he says, just sleep on. I've already talked to the Father. I told him if there's any other way, let's go a different route. But nevertheless, not my will. Yours be done. And that's when Judas started through the orchard, through those olive groves. Here came a torch and here came 
uh, soldiers, and here came other people riled up in a mob to take Jesus. We're going to take Jesus. Nobody took Jesus. Peter had brought a sword. As they got to the gate, Jesus came out and said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And all of a sudden, an echo from all the way back when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? He said, I am sent you. When you say Yahweh, you're saying, I am that I am. God doesn't need a name. I am. There is no other. I am. It doesn't matter. It is not I was or I will be. I am. I am the King of kings. I am the Lord of lords. I am God Almighty. I am. I am. I am. And when you read the account, he stands at the garden entrance and they're there with torches and clubs and swords. And he says, I am. And they fall to the ground because they've encountered their creator and they're laying on the ground. And he says, who did you come for? Here I am. Peter thinks he's being helpful and he takes a swipe at Malchus, the high priest's servant, and Malchus sees the sword. Now, what are you going to do with the sword? Bring it on, right? No, he ducks. And the sword goes, and his ear goes right off onto the ground. And Jesus says, put your sword away. You know, things happen, and we, we just if we could just be there. He reaches down on the ground and he picks his ear off the ground and he puts it back on his head. He puts it back on his head. So then Jesus surrenders and they take him away. And I'm sure the last one in the garden was Malchus going, did that, did that really just happen? You'd think that'd make a believer out of you, wouldn't it? They brought him to Caiaphas, and Caiaphas just, they're so angry. You know, when the real encounters the counterfeit, and the counterfeit has no defense, it can only become angry. And so Jesus comes into their presence. Jesus moves through Israel for a short ministry, only three years. He was a carpenter before that. He wasn't trained by a rabbi. He didn't need to be. He is the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't need a rabbi to teach him. He was the word. And they couldn't stand him. Because when you live by rules, the one that lives by relationships smokes you every time. All of a sudden, Jesus could just fly right by because they had nothing on the wisdom that he had. Every ridiculous question they asked him, oh, we're so smart, we'll trip him up. He threw it right back at them every time. His wisdom was well beyond their understanding. So they literally pulled his beard out. They beat him. They blindfolded him and said, prophesy who hit you. Come on, I dare you. Which one of us did that? Come over here. You do it. Who was it? Bam! They bloodied him up good. They passed him over to Herod Antipas. Here's the thing about Herod the Great. He'd been at odds with the Jews because he sold out the Jews to have favor with the Romans. 
So Herod was uh, not in good favor with the Jews. But once they sent Jesus over to him to be judged, he couldn't deal with Jesus. He sent him back. But they were friends after that. And they were close because in this moment of Jesus' darkness, wickedness found common ground. They sent him over to Caiaphas, breaking all kinds of laws, judging him in the middle of the dark with nothing. They tried to put up false accusers, and their accusers couldn't come up with the same story. Peter, who said, uh, uh, I'll never deny you, Jesus said, yeah, you will. You'll do it three times before you hear a rooster in the morning. Peter stands out by the fires. John gets into the proceedings and lets Peter in closer. And they say, well, you sound like one of them Galileans. He's got that Galilean accent. And uh, he said, no, I'm not a Galilean. I don't know what you're talking about. The servant comes out while he's warmed by the fire and says, yeah, you're, I've, I saw you. At, I had lunch that day when 5,000 were fed. I, I saw you at a distance, but you're with. No, I was not. I'm not what he is. Then finally, they asked him a third time, and he swore. He started cussing, and, you know, don't even try that. I'm not one of his. What was in him was fear. Fear and faith are exclusive. You can't be filled with fear and have the presence of faith. Faith either pushes out fear or fear pushes out faith. That's the only way it can work. As soon as he said it the third time, a cock crowed. And Jesus, in the proceeding where he's being judged, and he's standing there, he looked over at Peter. Peter had walked on water. Peter had identified the Messiah. Yet at this moment, I believe Peter just wanted to melt into the ground. Because during the worst hour of his dear friend's life, he failed. The difference between Peter and Judas is Peter repented. He went out and wept bitter tears and repented, but Judas hung himself and spilled his bowels out. I mean, he, he really did it up. He tried to take the money back. They wouldn't take it. That's blood money. And it was used for a cemetery for aliens, for people that weren't citizens of Israel. They just did it for a sort of a, you know, poor man's cemetery. When we get into this moment, we've heard this story. We, we know this story. But we need to appreciate the fact that this was 4,000 years in the planning. It was executed to fulfill every prophecy in the Old Testament. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't, it wasn't haphazard. It wasn't, it was, it was for us sitting here right now. God put all these pieces together. Finally, when the light broke and the day came, because they'd been at Jesus all night. They'd had him up all night, questioning him, beating him, accusing him. He was already a bloody mess. As soon as, you know, Pilate was open for business in the morning, they took him to the praetorium to Pilate. Pilate brought out his throne and sat up on it. He was uh, the governor, basically, the Roman governor of the area. Pilate was called a friend of Caesar. When you were a friend of Caesar, you had a ring and you had special privileges. But Pilate had gotten in trouble. The temple is on one hill and the praetorium's on another. 
And his unit of soldiers had been especially honored for valor in battle. And they'd been given a shield that had the image of Caesar on it. And this shield was a great honor. And so they hung them up when they weren't using them. They hung them up to display that they were a highly decorated unit. The, the Jewish leadership, Caiaphas and Annas, hated it so much that they complained to Rome that they were putting a graven image equal with their God. And so he'd been reprimanded. And to lose the privilege of being a friend of Caesar would have been devastating. It was bad enough he was... In Israel, nobody wanted that assignment. But to lose your status with Caesar would have been reckless and career-crushing. So when they brought Jesus, he knew what was going on. He knew what Jesus had been doing. I don't doubt he had Romans go to the events that happened so that they could see what this man was doing and see whether or not he was a terrorist, see whether or not he was planning something, see whether or not he was causing trouble. And all they saw was people being fed and people being healed. And the crowd was more peaceful instead of more rebellious. They were more calm. They were more joyful rather than being uh, political opponents of Rome. They were tuned in to this man and his stories. Pilate was already aware of who he was. Pilate was already aware of what he'd done. And he saw the jealousy in the, in the Jews. He saw the jealousy in the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And he understood that there was friction there. The Jews had lost their ability to, to give out capital punishment. The Romans wouldn't let them execute anybody. The Romans took control of that part of the law. They'd let them follow their rules. They'd let them rule over little things, but you're not going to take life. That's going to be our business. So they took him to Pilate to finish him off. When they took him to Pilate, they accused him of things that were not true. Pilate could see through their jealousy. Pilate took him in the back room to talk to him, and Jesus is bloody. Jesus smells like lavender. Jesus has a regal character. Pilate's been in the presence of the Caesar. Pilate's been in the presence of superiors. And to see Jesus' carriage, a beaten man, and yet when he says, don't you understand that I have the power of life and death over you? He said, no, you don't. I wouldn't be here if I hadn't been delivered into your hands. In other words, you're just a player in this. You're not the head of it. I am. Pilate had been told by his wife she'd had a bad dream and said, leave that man alone. Don't do him any harm. You need to stay as far away from this situation as you can. Please, please, please. Don't engage. Pilate thought he could use a trick. They... During this festival, which is Passover, they would, as a favor to the Jews, the Romans would release a prisoner. So he put up Barabbas and he put up Jesus. And they said, you know, release Barabbas, a true criminal, just release him. Barabbas is probably confused. Why am I being let go? Jesus hears them say, after Pilate inquires, what should I do with this man? And the chant over the crowd is, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So he has a basin brought out and he washes his hands, symbolically washing his hands of this and saying, it's on you. 
He thought before he gave up Jesus to the Jews, before he offered that opportunity, he thought, if I just whip him and just punish him a little bit, maybe they'll just let this guy go because he's not guilty of anything. So they scourged him. In the book of Isaiah, it says, by his stripes we were healed. In the book of Isaiah, it was projecting forward. In the book of Peter, it says, by his stripes we are healed. It's looking back. It's like this. Someday God's going to put the money in the bank so you can draw. Peter says, it's already there. By his stripes we are healed. We were. It's already accomplished. The Old Testament is by his stripes we are healed. The New Testament is were. It's already done. So then in comes the whip. This is not what it'd be like. It wouldn't have been a bull whip. It would have been a uh, cat of nine tails more than likely. And it would have had bits of bone, bits of glass, bits of rocks. And it would have ripped the meat off of him. Roman soldiers were the cruelest soldiers the world had ever seen. They were cruel. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They bowed down to him after they threw a purple cloth over him and mocked him and hit him with a reed that they'd given him for a scepter. And they sent him out. And Pilate gave him over to travel the Via Della Rosa. That's kind of a romantic name for it, isn't it? It, it was a bloodied man, his back stripped of meat and skin, exposed. A man who uh, had done nothing but was being punished for everything we'd ever done. It doesn't matter what you've done. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. Nobody's exempt. But you're included. What a one. 
This was our doing, not his. The 4,000 years that preceded and the 2,000 years since carried the weight of our sin on this cross. He couldn't make it all the way to where he would be crucified. He, uh, he had to have help. And uh, then they nailed him to the cross. The cross is particularly cruel. A matter of fact, the Romans outlawed it as too cruel even to do to slaves. The cross is a death of suffocation. What they do is they stretch you out and it would sometimes take days. It would take days for people to die. It would take days for them to expire because they're suffocating. You get to where you're so tired you can't pull in far enough to inflate your lungs. So your breath gets shallower and shallower and shallower until you can't breathe anymore. Imagine being laid on that with your back just completely shredded. You've been beaten, you've, you're black and blue, your, your beard's been pulled. You're wet and stained with your own blood and sweat. And they lay you down on that and it wasn't a fine piece of furniture. It wasn't even finished lumber like this. It was a cross. It was just an instrument to take a life. It was just a tool. From On that cross, thank God. Jesus died and he's gone for us. Oh, to prepare oh, a mansion. Praise God, yes he is. We did last, it. We may enter. It's not his fault. God created a man and a woman oh, in innocence. But when they sinned, we've never been innocent again. We're guilty. But we don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to be trapped in this anymore. Because he died, the penalty's been broken. And we've been set free. We've been set free. We've been set free. When you look at the graphic that we had up there, go ahead and uh, put the graphic back. That's us. This is us. We did this. I know we were born into sin. We got here not of our own doing. But God couldn't leave us there. God couldn't let go of the fact that he loved us. When he created us, he knew this would happen. When he created us, he knew eventually we would put him in this position. And you know what he did? He did it anyway. Just stand it up right here. So I'm going to tell you something. I have kind of a uh, 
a bugaboo about, I'm really bothered by a crucifix. Jesus was here until, until it was accomplished. But he's not here anymore. A crucifix stops at the wrong point. It's okay to have a cross as a symbol. But let's take Jesus off the cross. Because he isn't even in the tomb. He's already left that behind. He's already in a different place. He's already brought us redemption. He's already left that behind. Oh, Lord, help us remember. <coughs> when, when they put him on the cross, early in the morning, they, they already had him up on the cross. The little religious leaders rode up on their donkeys. Can you see some fat, plump little Pharisee on a poor little donkey just riding up there? And they ride up in front of him and they say, Hey! If you are who you say you are, come down, we'll believe you. Isn't it interesting that doubters always want one more thing? Just one more. It's like, why didn't you believe me when you saw what I could do? When you witnessed me casting out demons, when you witnessed me feed 5,000 with a boy's lunch, when you witnessed the sick being healed, the people being set free. When you witnessed it, why didn't you follow me then? Why would coming down help? The devil thought he was finishing God. Isn't that amazing how we can believe falsehoods? You know, if you're deceived, you don't know it. The devil was deceived. He thought, this is great. If he knew what he was doing, he would have never done it. He was breaking the authority he had stolen from Adam. He was breaking it off of humanity. Satan would no longer have the keys to death, hell, and the grave. God would make sure they never, never are possessed by evil again. Here he is setting us free. So misinterpreted. And while they're wagging their tongues at him, people are wagging their tongues at him like people do. They see somebody in a weak point, so they go over and they just give it to him. They thought they had him down. And what they didn't realize, he said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. So the first thing out of his mouth is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know. They don't know that the one who put breath in their lungs is now dying for their sins. Father, you know, I'd be kind of caught up in my own thing if I'm on a cross. I'd be kind of caught up in me. Ow! Ow! Does anybody hear me? Ow! And he's saying, forgive them. That's not necessarily my first thought when I'm being harmed he's not looking back at an old memory he's in the moment and he's saying forgive them to teach us in the moment quit making excuses for your offense and your hurt and your pain and forgive them I forgive you I forgive you I forgive you the most amazing character in the Bible to me, apart from God, of course, 
I just can't get over the thieves. They were caught up in it and they were hurling insults at him. He was hung out there with a thief on each side. But it tastes like sand in the mouth of one of the thieves. It tasted like sand. And he, he turned to Jesus hanging on the cross and he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. <laughs> no, no, no. To everybody else, this is over. Even the disciples are thinking, if we don't hide, we're next. The only disciple that ventured out to the cross was John. We're done. We're toast. They're going to come for us next. And the thief next to him says, could you remember me when you come into your kingdom? To everybody, including the devil, to everybody, it was over. This was finished. Whatever he was trying to do had ended. And the thief next to him says, could you remember me? And Jesus says, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. You're going to be with me in paradise. The first, the first, the first convert was a man hanging on the cross next to him for what he had done. He wasn't there because he was innocent. He was there because he was guilty. And God said, I'll see you in paradise. Wow! How did that thief see beyond that cross? He's up there dying with the other guy. They're dying. We're up here dying, dying, dying. Hey, don't forget me. How did he do it? How could it have happened? How could he understand? How could he see what the religious leaders who had memorized the whole Bible, everybody below him watching this happen, all his disciples, all his friends, all his enemies, everybody thought this was the end. This is the period on the sentence. And the thief next to him says, don't forget me. I want to go where you're going. I want to be part of your kingdom. I want to be with you. I want this. You want this? A guy that's been beaten and accused and dying on a cross? No, I want to be part of your kingdom. And he says, then that's what'll happen. You're gonna be in there with me. You're going my way. Then his mother and his Disciple John the Beloved was at his feet. And he's on the cross, people. He's in tremendous agony. He's suffering pain like we can't imagine. And he says, hey. Woman. Behold your son. He wasn't talking about him. He was saying, John. Take care of mom from the cross where he's dying. Forgive them. You'll be in paradise with me in a few minutes and watch out for mom. These are going to be tough times. I need you, John. Come on. How did he do it? Because God is not about love. He is love. From nine o'clock to three o'clock, it went completely black. And he said, uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. 
God the Father, as the scapegoat received the sins of all humanity, looked away. And Jesus felt the tearing away of his relationship with his Father for that moment. Where are you going, God? He said he was thirsty and they lifted some vinegar up to him and he said, it's finished. He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Nobody took the sacrifice. Jesus gave it. In Egypt, when the plagues were happening, the last plague was death was going to come along and take all the firstborn And Moses instructed him to kill a lamb and catch the blood and put the blood up the side and across the top of every door and roast that lamb and eat it through the night. And in the morning, all of Israel's children were still there because the blood had been applied. And all of Egypt's firstborn were gone. The wailing and weeping was unbelievable. And it broke Pharaoh and he let them go. That was a symbol and a type of this blood that was shed. So that all the evil in this world that has its hold on us has to lose its grip to life through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Josh. That's all right. Okay. Go ahead and play the old rugged cross. God. 
Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. In Isaiah chapter 53, well, it starts in 52, 700 years before what we've talked about happened. 700 years. Listen to what he says. My servant will prosper. He'll be highly exalted. Many were amazed when they saw him beaten and bloodied, so disfigured, one would scarcely know he was a person. And he will again startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not previously been told about. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom will the Lord reveal his saving power? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, sprouting from a root in dry and sterile ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with the bitterest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped and we were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sin of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly yet he never said a word. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, a sheep silent before the shearer. He did not open his mouth. From prison and trial, they led him away to his death. But who among the people realized that he was dying for their sin? He was suffering for their punishment. He had done no wrong and he never deceived anyone. He was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him and fill him with grief. Yet when his life was made an offering for sin, he will have a multitude of children and many heirs. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's plan will prosper his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of what he has experienced, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. And he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of one who is mighty and great because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among those who were sinners. He bore the sins of many and interceded for all. In Isaiah 52, it says, put on your beautiful clothes because this is good news. Put on your beautiful clothes. Let the world be attracted to this message because in this message is our redemption. Amen. Just bow your heads for a moment and let's just let's just think about all that you've seen and heard. Let's talk about it for just a minute. If you have not received Jesus Christ as your personal savior, everything we talked about today was for you. He died so you wouldn't have to. He wants to give you life so you don't have to follow after death. He doesn't want you to live a life that's empty and hollow and 
just based on your appetites. He wants it to be filled on greater things like love and joy and peace. He wants you to live a full life and go into a full and lively eternity with him. But in our sins and in our failures, in our efforts to be good, we're going to end up in a place called hell. And this cross came to unlock the door so we could go home to heaven. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, or if you've moved away from him and you need to return from your backsliding, lift your hand right now and say, Tim, would you pray with me? I want to make heaven my home. There's one. Anybody else? Thank you. Is there another? Is there another? Let's make heaven home. Don't live with a question or a doubt. Live with the assurance because the Holy Spirit's been deposited in you to assure you that you're saved so you know heaven is my home. Don't leave this house with any doubt. With the one that lifted your hand and anybody else who needs to pray this, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 